0: Maybe it Thanks, David. Thanks, Artis. Thanks, everyone. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. We've been slowly working our way through 1 Corinthians. We started a long time ago. But the end is in sight. Sometime. It will come. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, and there's only 16 chapters. So, goodness knows, you'd think that I would be able to finish two chapters before the end of the year. Yes? No. <laughs> Maybe. Who said no? My sister and Roxy, of course they would. Yes. I tell you. <laughs> we're in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 to 34. My favorite movie of all time is the movie Amazing Grace. It's a great movie. It tells the story of William Wilberforce uh, and his fight to end slavery in Great Britain. It is a Hollywood movie, and so it is mostly accurate uh, with a lot of non-accuracies in there, inaccuracies. But it's a great movie. I love it. And surprisingly, for a Hollywood movie, it actually focuses on William Wilberforce's faith. But they don't focus on it as much as they could. To William Wilberforce, one's faith in Jesus Christ was not something that you pulled out on Sunday mornings. You take it off the shelf, you dust it off, you parade it to church, after church you go back home and you put it on the shelf, and then you live your life. That was not William Wilberforce's faith. And the movie doesn't really show that, though it kind of alludes to it, because William Wilberforce And his fight to end slavery that he did in the British Parliament was tied distinctly to his faith. He said that our faith is something that affects every day that we live if we have a faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote a book to that effect because he he agreed with it so much. He called it a practical view of Christianity. And through this book, he tries to convince those who are Christians to pursue the real nature and principles of the religion which they profess. That's his words. One of the popular republishings of the book, in the back, of about the, on the back, about the book, says this. Christianity is not a mere morality to be held in private. Christianity is a revelation from God, bringing new rights and correspondent duties. It's in an entire way of life that requires diligence And study, and that should affect every aspect of the Christian's public and private life. That's what William Wibbleforce believed, and he put that into practice. I own this book, not this publishing of it. I own the book that has some of this one, they updated the English, and I have the one that they didn't update the English. So if you want to borrow it, you can. I can also give you a dictionary, too to go through it because it is a you you slog your way through this book but it's really good it's a really good book too many Christians throughout the centuries have Sunday morning religion They, they don't have a daily life that is changed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ too many Christians have the faith of some people in government these days who say that they're part of a specific denomination and the specific denomination is against certain things like abortion. And these politicians say, yes, I'm part of that denomination over there, but I'm going to support policies that are against what my denomination says. Because my public life is different from my private life. William Wilberforce would say that person is not pursuing true Christianity. The Corinthians were the same as so many people these days. They're beginning to accept from some false teaching. And this false teaching was influencing them to live like the world around, rather rather than living like someone who's redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Paul has some strong feelings about the Corinthians. So much so that actually in the original language, he writes some strong oaths that the English translations don't translate because that's something that people in polite society don't say. Let's read the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 to 34. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 to 34. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human (coughs) hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are the God who we can know. And you gave us your word that we might know you. You gave us your word that we might be slapped in the face and corrected when we need it. Thank you for loving us that much to send your son to die for us when we were yet sinners. And after we turn to him, you change us that we might reflect you. And you keep doing it over and over and over and over again. Father, today as we study your word, I ask that we would understand it and that we wouldn't just say, well, that's nice. But you would change our hearts and you would change our lives to be people who reflect you. Lord, show us your holiness and cause us to desire it. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And Father, give us the strength, the alertness, and the energy for this morning. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul, in this passage, grabs the Corinthians by their collar shoves them against the wall and screams in their face, wake up! That's what he does in this passage. The letter, as Paul's writing it from the beginning of 1 Corinthians to the middle and now he's approaching the end, Paul is getting more and more frustrated with the Corinthians as he dives deeper and deeper into their sin and then he comes to the root issue uh, behind their action and their beliefs. He's talking about all these These things that are around the issue. And finally in 1 Corinthians 15, he gets to the root issue. Their belief about the resurrection. Because their belief about the resurrection has affected everything they've done before this time. And he pleads with them. And he pleads with us to wake up. He calls the Corinthians to wake up to belief. The passage opens with the most hotly contested sentence in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 Paul says, "Now if there's no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them?" That verse has caused theologians for the past 2000 years to scratch their head. And if you study this verse, there are over 40 different interpretations of that verse alone, just two sentences. 40 different interpretations. Far be it from me to solve what great men of God have disagreed on for the past 2,000 years. I don't have that good of a brain. Neither do they. One day we'll understand. But what does it mean that the Corinthians were baptizing people for the dead? As I said, there are over 40 different interpretations about it. Just a simple reading of the passage, it seems like certain Corinthians were concerned about their loved ones who had died, that their loved ones perhaps had not accepted Jesus, were not in heaven, and so they baptized themselves so that these loved ones would go to heaven after they died. Kind of salvation post hoc, if you will. The problem is, we have no historical record of this ever happening in the early church. So, no historical record. Plus, it flies in the face of everything else the Bible teaches about baptism. That the bap- baptism is done to someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, an outward symbol of an internal something that's happened on the inside. So, it's not correct biblically. This isn't the first time that the Corinthians had done something heretical in their past. I mean the whole book is written because the Corinthians are doing things that are not according to what God wants us to do. 200 years after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, we have certain groups called the Gnostic cults. These are people who who claimed to worship Jesus in the 200s AD to 300s AD, but they believed some things that were not correct about Jesus, some things that were not correct about salvation. They said that Jesus wasn't actually fully God. They said salvation is through works that we do, that sort of stuff. And they baptized people on behalf of the dead. But again, these are Gnostic cults. They are not true believers. Fast forward today, we have the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Again, those who are not true Christians. They believe something different about Jesus, that he is not fully God. They believe that salvation is by works, not by faith. They baptize people for the dead. They actually point to these verses as proof why they should do it. But Paul, if the Corinthians are doing this, they're actually baptizing people for the dead, that those dead might be saved. Paul is not applauding them. He's not saying, good job, what you're doing is right. He's just stating a fact. Just like in 1 Corinthians 5, he stated the fact that a man was sleeping with his stepmom. By Mentioning that, he's not saying that's a good thing, and we all would agree with that. Same with this situation. If the Corinthians are doing it, it's not a good thing. Paul's just stating a fact. He's saying you're doing something based on the resurrection, and it's not jiving with what you say you believe. Another interpretation about this passage is that people are being baptized because of the dead. You have this person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They're on the deathbed. And their loved ones are gathered around and they see the joy and the peace that this person exhibits as they pass into eternity. And their loved ones who are not Christians see that. And they see the hope and the resurrection that is evident in the person who's passed. And they say, I want what they have. And so they accept Christ and they are baptized because they have accepted Christ because of the person, the witness of the person who died. I like that one. I like that interpretation. It's nice, warm, and fuzzy. Makes me happy. But because what I know of the Corinthians, it's probably the heretical one that they're doing. Because they are a messed up church. Either way, no matter what your idea of this passage is, it doesn't change the meaning of it. Paul's argument stays the same. Something is happening in the Corinthian church. That thing is tied to the resurrection, whether it's the correct practice or the heretical one. And Paul says, hey, you're doing this thing because of the hope of the resurrection. Yet you are allowing people to teach that the resurrection will never happen. And you agree with them that the resurrection will never happen. Paul says, come on, Corinthians. Wake up and believe what is actually true. One of the core truths of our faith, the foundation stone, is that Jesus rose from the dead. And one day he is coming back again to call us home. Everyone who has placed their faith in him will be brought into an eternity with him. That's the promise. That is the hope. That is the guarantee. It's the core truth. Those who have not placed their faith in him will be resurrected to death, not to life. John writes this in John chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. He says, Then I saw a great right throne, and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from its presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. and Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. The death in Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Wake up to belief, Paul says. Everyone that takes a breath as a baby starts life on the road to death. That's the path that they are taking. The second death is assured to them. There's no such thing as an innocent, guiltless baby. Everyone is born a sinner, everyone is on that path to an eternity of destruction. Our sinfulness, our depravity, keeps us on that path. Then as we talked about last week, Jesus came that we might have life. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, this is Jesus, have come that they may have life, and they have it to the fullness. Jesus offers this life to everyone who comes to him in faith. Some among the Corinthians claim that this life is only for this earth. The life that Jesus offered, this abundance that is for everyone, is only for this earth, the Corinthians said. 1 Corinthians 15, 13, people were saying, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Too many people today in Bible churches teach that the other extreme, that the life that Christ offers is only for the next. But Christ offers both. Life then, life now. Hope then, Hope now, because the guarantee of the resurrection changes our thoughts and our viewpoints on this life today. I always read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 at graveside services. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 to 18, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. who ye who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That last sentence is the key for the whole Thessalonians passage. Paul in this is not writing about eternity. He is, but his focus isn't writing about eternity. His focus is saying, we know eternity is sure, therefore let us live today in light of that. Encourage one another with these words. If we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there will be a resurrection, we will have courage today. If we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there will be a resurrection, we will have hope today. If we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there will be a resurrection, it will change everything about our life, it will change everything about our worship service, it will change what we do and what we don't do. Paul looks at the Corinthian church, at their rituals, at their stated beliefs, and he says, something isn't matching here, Corinthians. Something isn't jiving. So wake up to belief, Corinthians. And then he urges them, hey, Corinthians, once you believe the right thing and you know that there will be a resurrection beyond a shadow of a doubt, therefore wake up to hope. Wake up to hope. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 30 to 32, Paul says, as for us, Why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. What we believe affects how we view situations around us. Paul did not live a nice, cushioned life, relaxing on his couch, eating his favorite meal with his loving family around him. That was not Paul's life. We actually have no idea what happened to his family. We know he had to have been married, had a family, because of his status in the Pharisees before he accepted Christ. Some posit that his wife died sometime earlier, so we don't have any record of it. Other people say, well, it's based on what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and some insights that he says around there that perhaps Paul's wife actually left him because he accepted Christ. We don't know, but it's a plausible theory. All we know is after he turned to Christianity, he spent the rest of his life going from one hardship to another. That was his life. Hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship. He writes about these in 2 Corinthians. He writes about these in Galatians. He writes about these in Philippians. All throughout his letters, he talks about the hardships that he faces for Jesus Christ. One of these passages is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Paul says, are they servants of Christ? Talking about these people. And he's talking about people who claim to be Christians, but they're not really. He says, I'm more. I've worked harder. I've been in prison more frequently. Been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death. Again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits. In danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressures of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak that I don't feel weak? Who's led into sin that I do not inwardly burn? Paul does not live the nice, comfortable life that we would all like. Paul doesn't live the American dream. But a life that he lives is the life that many of us will live coming into the future. God does not promise us a lifetime of happiness. I look out and I see faces of people who have already lived through pain and grief that none of us want to live through. But there is more coming. What carried Paul through all of that pain and misery inwardly and outwardly? What can carry us through that pain and misery that comes accosting us from the outside and from the inside? Hope. Hope. That's it. Hebrews chapter 6. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 6, 17 to 20. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the errors of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So many things I could go in that passage, I don't have time to. We know that Jesus is alive, the author of Hebrews tells us. And one day he is coming to take us into an eternity where we will live on this earth again. But on this earth there will be nothing out of place. There will be no more sickness, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sin, there will be no more death. That is an assurance, a confidence, a truth, something we know that will happen beyond a shadow of a doubt. That is a hope. And that hope in Jesus Christ that we have is like an anchor. Do you know what an anchor does? Around here, we have anchors on small shipping things. I don't know if I can really call them boats. You put them on a lake, you drop the anchor, And the anchor keeps you so that your boat will stay where you want it to stay so you can catch your fish. I lived for a period of time in Pensacola, Florida, next to the naval base. I would go on the naval base, and them, they had boats. And I'd bring out my southern accent for that one. (laughs) An anchor holds a ship. Not just so it doesn't move so they can catch the fish. It holds the ship so that when storms come, the ship doesn't get splintered. When a captain knows a storm is coming, the captain brings his ship to an anchorage. A place where there is shelter, so to speak, but there is a nice bottom on the ocean floor that he can drop his anchor to. And the anchor holds onto the anchor on the bottom of the ocean floor. The storm comes and hits that ship. And the ship starts spiling around the anchor. Threatening to capsize. Threatening to pull the anchor out. And if it does, that ship is going to be thrown against the rocks on the shore. It's going to be demolished. And most people on the ship is going to die. It's going to happen. But the storm comes and it hits that ship. And it tugs that anchor. But the anchor holds. In spite of the storm. That's what an anchor does. Too often... We take the anchor of our life and we put it in everything else we're not supposed to put it into. We take the anchor of our life and we put it into the sins of our life. The temptations, the desires. Bad times come, storms come, and we say, this will make me happy. This will give me comfort. This will give me joy. This will give me peace. Whether it's addictions or whatnot, we put our anchor into that. But unfortunately, it doesn't hold It just creates more chaos, and our ship capsizes, and we feel like we're going to drown because we put our anchor in the wrong thing. Too often we put our anchor in our hopes and dreams of our life, and we say, I'm going to live for that, and I'm putting my hope into what I want to do in the future. Yes, chaos is happening around me, but I'm just going to look towards that. But unfortunately, those hopes and dreams aren't guaranteed. I've had hopes and dreams in the past have never fulfilled and you all have lived much longer than me and you've had so many hopes and dreams that have been dashed. That anchor doesn't hold. We put our anchor in in the people around us, in our friends, in our family. We put our anchor in our pocketbook. We put our anchor in our ability to be in control of a situation and to keep everyone around us safe. But none of those anchors hold. They don't. They break and our ship gets dashed and we drown. The only anchor that holds is Jesus Christ. That's the only one that holds. The fact that he is resurrected and he is coming back to save us from this world of sin and death, that anchor holds. That is why Paul was able to face death every hour. That's why he was able to face persecution in Ephesus that felt like it was wild animals tearing his flesh apart. That's why he was able to bear the pressures of these young churches that were teeping on the edge of heresy. And he's able to still come to them and say, stay strong, stay strong. Because of hope. Hope. That is the only anchor that holds is Jesus Christ. That anchor of hope not only carries us through the chaos and storm of this life, but it gives us joy in the midst of the chaos and storm of this life. One of my life verses that unfortunately I forgot until very recently, but I'm glad that God reminded me of it, is Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Such a powerful verse. God is a God who gives us hope that is an anchor for our soul, and that hope gives us joy. We get to seize that joy, no matter the chaos that's going around us, and it allows us to run this race of life just as Jesus ran it before us. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Hope, bringing joy, giving us strength to do what is right, no matter the chaos and storm of this life, even though we might sit in our chairs and say, I can't do it. God says there's hope. Seize it. Seize it. Paul says, wake up to belief. He says, wake up to hope. Finally, he says, wake up to action. Because if we have the right beliefs, and those beliefs translate hope in our lives, we must respond by living according to that belief, according to that hope. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 33 to 34, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts bad character. Come back to your senses as you are and stop sinning, Corinthians, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. If we do not believe that there is life following this life, we're going to live this life however we want to live it. If we don't have hope, it doesn't matter what we do. As the Corinthians said, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. doesn't matter. They're quoting a passage in Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 22. The the Israelites were living their life without regard for the God who declared them his own. He said, you are mine, follow me, I'm going to give you everything you need. the Israelites said, I don't care. I want to do my own thing, follow my own desires. I'm going to follow the gods of the culture around because they will make me happy. Lies. But they did it. They're living according to their own priorities, their desires. They're about to experience judgment because of those choices. Isaiah 22 talks about this judgment. Isaiah 22, verses 12 to 14. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. The Lord god said, hey, you are doing wrong. Repent and turn to me. Repent and turn to me, Israelites. Well, the Israelites said, no. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle, killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Israelites said, yeah, we know we're doing wrong. Yeah, we know judgment's coming, Therefore, we're just going to keep doing what we're going to do. We're going to live it up while we can. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Very harsh, harsh passage. But the idea, the philosophy of the Israelites is so prevalent today. We say, yes, we understand there is hope, And we understand that God wants us to live according to that hope. But you know what? My sin is just great. I like it. I like my desires. I like my temptations. I like my priorities. I don't want to live for God. We have this attitude so much. He says, yeah, we know, but we're going to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's all we're going to focus on is now. We're not going to focus on then. I think about the parable that Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. Jesus tells this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger ones. And then I will store my surplus. There I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, hey, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, You're a fool. This very night, your life is going to be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Too often, we get caught up in this life, forgetting that there is a life to come. So naturally, if we forget that we will live forever, that there's so much greater things in store, we try to take forever today. We join the worship of the God of busyness in our culture. We take part in all these activities. So much so, because of all the activities we flood our lives with, we don't have time to spend with God once a week. Because there's all this we have to do. And that's expectation. And there's this sport. And there's that. Because I got to do it. We don't have time for God once a week much less every day. We get so involved in these activities, seizing the chance to be involved with everything while we can, but we forget that we're going to live forever. And forever is a really long time to do what brings us joy and happiness. So we better be preparing for eternity while we can. We come across our pet sins whether they're small and don't hurt anyone or big and definitely do. And, and, and we say when we come to them, you know, it would feel so good if I would just do it or, or, or it wouldn't do much harm. I'm just going to do it one more time. or Is it that bad? And we say phrases like that when we come to our pet sin. It shows us that our eyes are not on eternity, but they're on today. Living for the now instead of living for the then. What about our kids and our grandkids? What about them? What are we showing them through our life? What are we teaching them to live for? Are we focused on setting them up for success here? Making sure they excel in education, having good grades, making sure they're involved in sports and getting all the activities they can while they can. Things that are going to be done away because eternity is coming and that stuff's not there. Or are we preparing them for eternity? A life that will last forever saying, you know what? It's okay if you don't go out for that sport. It's okay if you miss that game. It's okay if you don't get that A grade. Because we're going to spend time with God. Because that is the most important thing. What are we living for? What are we living for? What priority are we saying is the best thing in the world? What are we passing on to the next generation as what is real and good? Paul uses some interesting imagery in this passage. He says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. That phrase, come back to your senses, is literally sober up. Sober up. Throughout scripture, God resoundingly denounces drunkenness as something that no Christian should participate in. It says it controls our actions, our motions, things that only the Holy Spirit can control that. But Paul's not talking about drunkenness in this passage. He's using a metaphor, a figure of speech. He says, when we live for today instead of for eternity, when we say that our priority is the things today instead of God and life to come, it's like we are drunk We are living in a stupor. We are experiencing a chemically induced fake life. We are responding and reacting in idiotic ways. Any sort of description you want to put towards someone who is drunk beyond imagination, he says that is what we are like when we're living for today instead of for eternity. And Paul slaps the Corinthians in their drunken state and says, Wake up! He throws some cold water on them and slaps them again and says, wake up. We all need that done to us sometimes. Goodness knows I do. We all slip into a drunkenness and we start living for today. And we need to shake ourselves back to our senses and say, wait a minute. Eternity is coming. That is my priority. That is my focus. Why? Because the world is watching. We live surrounded by a culture that is mostly non-religious We live in a culture, in a county, that is vast majority non-Christian. Most, if you walk down the street, three out of four people you meet will have no idea what it means to have salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Three out of four people. And that fourth person, it's a flip of the coin whether they actually have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They may, not, they may know what it means, but they've never done it themselves. That's the county we live in. The world is watching. They don't know God. And the only way they know God is because of us and our witness. If they see us living for today, having no care for an eternity with God, they won't want eternity with God either. Because they say, well, if this guy here says they're a follower of God and they don't care about God, why should I? if they see us living with a priority of filling our life with all this stuff and this busyness and not spending time with God, they won't want to either. The misplaced priorities we have, they're going to have. It's like we're living in a car. We're driving a car and the world is in the back seat. In the car seat. And it's going wherever we go. With that world in the car seat behind us, do we want to drive drunk? And possibly sending those that are in the car seat in the car in the behind us to an eternity of damnation. That's the stakes that we are facing of where our priority is, whether it is eternity or here. Do we want to do that? Paul said no. Paul says we need to sober up and say, I'm going to live for eternity. I'm not even going to have anything that is close to living for today. I'm going to have a priority that is there because the stakes are so high. I am not going to have my senses dulled by the priorities and desires of this life. And I'm going to influence those under my care. Those who are watching my every move to stop living for today and see the hope and joy that comes when we live for eternity. Easy to say, but oh, it's so very hard to do. So very hard to do. And every day we have to make that resolve one more time, one more time, one more time. Paul says, wake up to action. Wake up to action. A mentor challenged me to do something recently that I've begun doing. He told me to take one day a month. I call it my retreat day. I go someplace no one can see me. Unfortunately, I got a flashy car that everyone knows where I'm at. (laughs) So I try to go where no one can see that car. But I pray over what happened the previous month. And I pray over what I hope will happen the next month. And I pray over three goals that I want to accomplish the next month. And I write those three goals down as a reminder of myself, of why I am here, and what I need to be doing To have that focus. My priority is eternity and that is going to affect what I do every day the next month. I encourage you, we need this. Everyone needs this. Everyone needs a time of refocusing where we assess our priorities and our desires and we realign them with God's call and our hope for the resurrection. I encourage you to take time this week to do it. We don't need a day. You don't need a day. Day is nice. You get to take a nap in the middle of it. But you don't need a day. You just need an hour. 30 minutes to do something and say, okay, what are my beliefs? And do what I say that I believe match up with how I actually live? Is what I say I believe matching up with what my priorities are? And if they don't, we take a moment, we pray, we wake up and change. We need to do it. We need to see and say, God, help me Live the resurrection today. Paul says, wake up to belief. Wake up to hope. Wake up to action. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Forgive us as your people for all the times that we say that Our priority isn't you. For all the times that we allow the busyness of our life to step up and distract us and tear us away from spending time with you and your people. Forgive us for the times that we allow the pet sins to seep back into our life and we don't say no to them. And we say we want to live for it instead of you. Lord, forgive us for not having eternity on our minds today and tomorrow and the next day. Lord, help us to change. For the sake of our witness and the world around us, Lord, help us to change. We need your strength for that. We need your confidence. We need your dogged determination. Show us what needs to happen and Father, give us the guts to take that steps to change our priorities and our actions, to change our schedule and what we tell other people so that the world around us would know that our hope is eternity and not today. And Father, I pray that there's anyone here who has never placed their faith in you that does not have hope for eternity, but they're still trusting in their good works or their religiosity or whatever it is, or they're just focused on this life and don't care the next, Lord, I ask that today they would turn to you in faith as their savior, their God, and they accept the gift that you gave and when you died on the cross 2,000 years ago, and have the hope that we have. Lord, work and change, guide and direct, for you're on your glory, amen.